Beer and Honey, the German football pod. Beer and Honey, the German football pod, World Cup edition, one of perhaps not that many in Qatar 2022 after Germany's opening defeat against Japan in the Khalifa International Stadium. I just got back in. Christoph Biermann watched it from home. Christoph, I'm still shell-shocked. Can you make sense of it all? Um, maybe I can I can help with um, asking you a question because you were actually inside the stadium. And I think inside a stadium, when you watch a football match from there, you get a better sense of the psychology of a match, what, what's going on. Um, and you actually you see more than, than us in, in front of the telly. So um, I think for more than an hour, it was like, I wouldn't say uh, Germany underway to an easy win because it was only 1-0, but... Germany created a lot of chances. They had the full control in the first half, but but also um, in the second half when Japan started to make some changes the first 15 minutes. They had this terrific triple chance uh, uh, where they had three shots uh, within one sequence of the game. And then something happened. And I don't don't know what it is. In a way, at that time, around the 70th minute or so, uh, Germany derailed. What, what got them off the rails? Well, what was interesting was that the players felt, or some players, I spoke to Ilka Gundogan after the game, Manuel Neuer, they felt that uh, Germany lost their composure playing out from the back. Uh, the Japanese, they changed at halftime. They changed to five at the back. In the beginning, that didn't make much of a difference because Germany found space behind them. But what they also did is to push further up and play man v man on the build-up. And both Manuel Neuer and Ilka Gundogan said, we had a feeling that some players didn't show anymore for the ball. They didn't move enough. So whether... That's a psychological issue or, you know, a sense of maybe this team isn't really dangerous or maybe just some sloppy passes, which also happened. It's hard to say, but Germany lost its sense of rhythm. And I think Hansi Flick, as much as I like him, didn't help his team by taking off Germany's two best players in Ilkay Gundogan and Jamal Musiala. You could say that it happened a little bit later for Musiala. There was only 10 minutes to go. But Gundogan coming off after 67 minutes for Gretzka, I think, was a huge mistake. There were no fitness issues. He wasn't tired. He wasn't injured. And I think Germany should have controlled the game the way they did in the first half. I think they put together more passes than any team has ever done in a half of the World Cup. I saw a stat from Opta. Okay. <laughs> um, and they also had the most possession ever for a team that's lost. The second most possession ever for a team was lost was Germany against South Korea <laughs> in 2018. <laughs> and of course, none of these things are significant if they take at least one or two more of their chances that they had. Then we wouldn't be talking about it. Maybe we'd be talking about a 4-2 or 3-1. But 
you cannot throw a game away like that. And my, my biggest takeaway from this, in a sense, was that it feels almost like a lack of seriousness cost them. I think they underestimated Japan. They felt too secure. And they didn't realize the danger. Leon Goretzka said those two goals that Japan scored, they didn't feel especially dangerous, which... I think it's objectively true because you don't concede goals like that usually. Secondly, the second, certainly the second one, which was a ridiculous goal to concede from a free kick deep in the Japanese half, three-man defense, two-player on offside, and one isn't. I mean, this just cannot happen. But it did. And now Germany are with their backs to the wall and really facing a second group stage exit because Spain looked pretty decent. Don't we have to talk about quality also? I mean, Germany, let's talk about both ends of the pitch, but start with the, um, with, uh, the goal threat. I mean, I, I looked up um, some numbers. They had 26 shots. Uh, Japan had 12. They had nine on target. Uh, Japan had four. And uh, the number that is more interesting, expected goals, Germany had uh, 3.27. I mean, that's normally enough for four goals or so. And, um, and Japan had 1.42. So um, there were loads of goal chances. Was it a lack of concentration? Don't we have... Uh, serious goal scorers as as um, the missing number nine what is it from your point of view it's very difficult to say because the likes of Serge Gnabry and Hoffmann who had that big chance Musiala had a, had a big one Musiala had a wonderful chance that he created for himself They, they score goals on a regular basis. It's not as if they suddenly find themselves one-to-one -one with a goalkeeper and they just don't know what to do because they, they, they're not strikers. They are forwards. They score lots of goals. I don't know what it is. I don't know if you can sort of go from being inefficient to suddenly being more efficient in front of goal by doing something differently. I, I'm not a professional footballer, but I'm not sure there is this button that you push, the efficiency button, and suddenly your finishing is better. Of course, you would like to have a number nine up there but who's to say that with the number nine Germany created so many chances that they did I mm. mean they created chances because they had a very flexible flexible attack they had a very defined system I thought the game plan in the first half worked so brilliantly at first I didn't quite understand it but then the more the game progressed you, you saw that Thomas Müller was just stationed there almost like a, a decoy simply for one reason, to drag the whole Japanese defense down to the right and give freedom to David Raum, or as Gabriele Makotti told me at halftime, um, Raumberto Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> um, And it, and it worked. That's how they scored uh, the goal from the penalty on uh, on the foul on Raum. That's how they should have really had one or two more chances. And in the second half when Japan changed, Germany didn't react well. And I think, again, that shows to me, you can call it a lack of overall quality, but 
I see it more in, in terms of a maturity as a team. I think this team, as we probably said, Christoph, is still a work in progress. And a better team, more stable, more sort of assured of its own system, it just doesn't get derailed, as you put it, in a game like this. They will find a way of winning. If it's not by scoring more goals, then you just shut down the game and you win 1-0 and you go home and everything's fine. Uh, and now you go home in a different way uh, if things go badly on Sunday. Um, Bastian Schweinsteiger, who is an expert for German on German TV, um, said um, great players and great teams show up in difficult situations. And... Um, When Germany got into difficulties towards the end of the uh, the game, there was nobody showing up. That was my impression from uh, from home, and I was particularly disappointed in that respect um, by Joshua Kimmich, and uh, because he is always it's always a talk that he is the leader of the team, but I co couldn't see it. Um, on the pitch in, in this difficult situation. Maybe you're right that he lacked the assistance of um, Ilkay Gündoğan and Jamal Musiala just to to have players that are able to keep the ball in uh, for lo a longer time or distribute it properly or so on. But um, yeah, he, he he went under. In, in this last uh, 50 minutes. Um, and, and I name him because he is always named as, yeah, as a kind of anchor um, of, the, of the German game. Yeah, my bigger problem with Kimmich was that he, I think even in the first half when Germany dominated, had one or two moments where, again, he, I think he underestimated the danger. Both him and Gündogan actually lost the ball in, in difficult moments and then the midfield was so exposed and... If Japan had a bit more quality, then even maybe in the first half they create chances. The fact that they don't create chances, I think, then weighs on Germany's mind, thinking, is they're not that good. You know, we can take a risk, we can take the extra touch, nothing will really happen. Suddenly they score two goals and then you start chasing the game. I thought on the ball Kimmich was very good. He created a realm chance that became the penalty and then the goal he had this wonderful chip towards um, Serge Gnabry who then laid off for Hofmann which should have been a goal the second one in the end I felt more that the structure had gone because suddenly Hofmann was on the right suddenly uh, Serge Gnabry was on the left suddenly you have Fulkrug in the middle so they're thinking kind of shall we cross the ball now we weren't crossing it for the whole time shall we now go more direct Germany kind of lost lost its way. And yes, you can say seasoned professionals like Kimmich and Gretzka maybe should take charge of the moment, but they weren't able. And I feel that the mistake was made before because you shouldn't concede those two goals. These two goals are just just ridiculous goals to concede. This, the first one we can say, May, okay, fine. It can happen. Clever run on the left and Rüdiger's a little bit late and then Neuer is a little bit unlucky, but the, the second one is just it's an <laughs> unbelievable goal. And people were uh, comparing it to the goal that Miroslav Klose scored for Germany against England in um, 2010 when Manuel Neuer kicked the ball long over John Terry and 
Klaus had just scored a goal, which which you see on Sunday Sunday League football. This was similar um, because you just don't see a ball flying 60, 60 meters and then suddenly a guy running a goal. It's just uh, nuts. But, but did you see did, did you see that the main problem? Um, oh, everybody instantly you were criticizing uh, Nico Schlotterbeck uh, because of his positioning. But the problem was um, that Niklas Zierle didn't make the step forward. And so that led to um, Schlotterbeck being in this wrong posi uh, uh, position. And then he had to hurry and was a bit too late to... to yeah, but I feel that he doesn't quite understand how dangerous the situation is when he's going back. He's sort of going back, but he's thinking, okay, the guy's quite on the right and... You know, he's not going to do anything. And then suddenly the guy is in front of Neuer. So I think he just doesn't quite get what's going on. Uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, the main mistake was made by Niklas Süle. Um, when we were talking about the uh, possible lineup in our last edition, I was uh, I was suggesting to, to uh, bring Christian Günther instead of David Raum. And... Retrospect, it, it was like um, uh, Hansi Flick did it all right because uh, how did you, Gabriele, call him? Um, uh, Roberto Carlos. <laughs> Roberto Carlos. <laughs> the, he, he, um, he was the most visible player in a way of uh, in this match, but um, but he was also not not an actual defender. Um, he he was more like a um, a classical winger in uh, in in a way, and and also so so you have a, a four man defense with um, with him, and also with Nico Schlotterbeck, who is always um, he is great in and play distributing these long passes, and 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 he has some something everybody likes to like because it's spectacular and it's positive and it's showy and so on. But he is, but, but is he a dead serious central defender? Probably not. And, and my idea uh, when, when I was suggesting uh, Christian Günther was, uh, the idea was behind it was, yeah, maybe it's a, it's a tight, tight game and then you get a goal and then you, You 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 have a kind of conservative setup to protect your uh, to protect your goal. Is that something that maybe even in the thinking of 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 the whole team and even of Hansi Flick uh, was lacking? Yes, it was. But then at the same time, I think the fact that he played Zule outright showed that he wanted to have that extra security almost of having a third centre-back. So it, in a way, it was quite a defensive defensive setup. Zule didn't really go forward much. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, Schlotterbeck went forward with the ball and then Zule would drop in a little bit. But it was not really a big part of the game plan. Whereas Raum was was pushed forward. So I think the idea really was to say we defend with three uh, players and put Raum on as another winger effectively in possession, which is something that, that Bayern have done quite well with Alfonso Davis at times. The problem is then 
if the pressing is non point, the gegen pressing, if your sort of spatial distribution of the midfielders is a little bit uh, off, then there are huge gaps. And um, I cannot repeat myself, even in the first half, even despite Germany's dominance, I never had the feeling that they're fully, fully in control of the game. Japan looked harmless, but because they weren't good enough, not because Germany was so good that they suffocated them. Mm -hmm. But whenever Japan had the ball, it didn't do anything with it and had like weird shots from impossible angles and all this kind of stuff. But I'm not sure it's in Flick's nature to say, let's start with... um, with a defensive left back and a defen- relatively defensive right back because they don't have really an attacking right back at all on the pitch. Uh, sorry, in the squad. So I think it was always a, ch- a question of Zule or, uh, or Tilo Kero on the right. Well, yes, Jonas Hoffmann could be, as our producer York has just told us, um, could be an option, has been an option. But then again, I think Flick didn't want to go gung-ho that much by having a, a, a winger playing as a as a fullback. And it wasn't necessary because Germany created enough chances. Don't forget, um, I think a lot of the things that Germany do well don't come necessarily from width, but from the half spaces. And there they have their best players, players between the lines. They don't really need to create that much width from the fullbacks. It's more of a build-up play. When it comes to the final third, Germany tend to be quite narrow, as again, as, as Bayern are. So I don't think that was necessarily the biggest problem. But defensively, it was a shocking, absolutely shocking performance. I guess you didn't have the chance to see Spain play. Who had a No, but t- I saw the result. <laughs> yeah. Was it and a close game? Not really. Um It was actually (laughs) uh, fun to watch them play and uh, create a lot of goal chances, create a lot of goals. And um, uh, Hansi Flick said, we have the quality to to beat Spain. Um, My my feeling uh, right now is um, it's over. Football's coming home. Yeah. It's it's German football is going home. It's already over be, be, before it really started, or is that now? I I correct myself. It's football, and we all know that everything is possible in football. And Germany can beat Spain. The inexperienced Spain, twenty of their twenty six players have never been to the World Cup. The youngest team, they will be overwhelmed by the situation. A highly concentrated German team will on Sunday Okay, I see Rafael um I see his face and he's not a believer. <laughs> I share your pessimism. I, I think it is possible of course. Spain have been very hot and cold, very unpredictable. They play really well and then have really bad games. If Germany take the first goal, score the first goal, maybe they'll find some rhythm confidence. But I think it'll be pretty difficult to recover from this game. And I think if Spain, God forbid, score first, it might well be over at that point. I think we might think of um, 
a different podcast in the next few weeks. Shall we talk about the Swiss maybe? Or? Great Bochum players deciding World Cup matches. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the only positive I, I can take from today's match that Bochum's Takuma Asano scored the second goal and um, became the star. In a way, I, I mean, in a way, actually, he was a uh, not only because he scored the goal, but but uh, when he came on, um, he he got the German defense running. That was the impression I got. But anyhow, it's. Uh, um, even for me, it's only the consolation prize. So, um, and we wanted to take uh, talk about the um, uh, Germany's chances. And um, right now, this evening, before we went, we go to sleep, and maybe wake up the next morning full of optimism. And and uh, it looks like uh, a very short world. World Cup again. I think it'll feel worse in the morning, personally. That's just my my fear. But um, anyway, uh, it cannot always be beer and honey on beer and honey. Sometimes uh, it's a bitter pill that you have to swallow. And tonight was certainly a huge disappointment for all lovers of German football. But it's not over. They'll get another chance, their last one as things stand, on Sunday. I think we should talk about this armband stuff before we leave. I saw you at the press conference, uh, this kind of improvised press conference that Bernd Neuendorf gave, uh, explaining the plan that Germany had, the, the plan that failed, and... Um, uh, there has been a lot of criticism for that in 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 Germany towards the German FA not being consequential. Um, they are saying um, they want to protect the players, the sport, um, because they had been put under pressure that they uh, probably got points deducted, everything very unclear. And so, but um, from being there, um, being near to this situation, what was your impression um, talking to the people there, the, the German FA people and people around the German national team in Qatar? I think they really were surprised that FIFA came down so heavy-handedly. They thought maybe, you know, we'll do it and then maybe FIFA will say don't do it again and then maybe for the second game there's a problem or whatever. But FIFA went all out and they did it so late. They didn't expect FIFA to come down so hard on them and effectively blackmail them, threatening them with unspecified sanctions. But what, from FIFA's point of view, what they did so well was to leave it so late. Because by doing it on the day of the the games for both England and uh, the Netherlands and, of course, Wales, they left them with very little time to come together to think this through, what shall we do? Because they decided to do this together, but the pressure, the immediate pressure was, first of all, on England and then the Dutch and then the Welsh. And as soon as those countries said, look, um, we, we, we don't know what to do, but I don't think we can just go into this blind and who knows what's going to happen. Maybe Harry Kane will get sent off or whatever. We can't do it. 
then as a block, they all had to decide not to do it. Because I think at that moment, it wouldn't have been realistic to think that the Germans would say, okay, yeah, well, unlike the English and the Dutch, we will still wear the armband and then see what happens. I don't think that was a realistic prospect. And I think some of the criticism that they received was way overblown, my personal view. I think the criticism should be reserved for for FIFA. And I think it's very, very easy to sit at home on the sofa and think this is a bad place, this World Cup shouldn't be there. And the best thing the players should do is just say, you know what, if you don't let me make the stand, I'm going to go home. When this is people's sporting dreams, this is their careers, this is their livelihoods, this is once every four years. Yes, it's only sport, but ask yourself if you were in a similar position, if your business receives an offer from a Qatari company to invest, if you have an offer to do a certain job that will change your life, whether you'd ask yourself to just say, no, no, not with me, I'm going to be totally true to my values and will not engage. I think it's very easily said and much harder done. And I think that the German FA were put in an impossible position. And I think you couldn't expect them to just send Manu Neuer out there and say, let's see what, what will happen. That was just was just not an option. Was it in a way, still, was it in a way naive not to think it through till the end. Yeah, maybe. I think that's a fair criticism. Again, I think the fact that they took this decision together a few months ago, didn't get an answer, probably led them to believe that FIFA would just ignore it. But you could also say that, like with any protest, look at the climate pro protest, for example, going on, just the fact that people are talking about it, much more than if perhaps then it's just been an armband and no reaction at all is in itself maybe evidence that it wasn't done in vain. Mm -hmm. And I've had people from The Athletic saying, you know, people from, from the LGBTQ community, that this armband is so lame, it's not real protest, it's not even a rainbow, um, proper rainbow uh, armband. This is just a, an easy thing to do. And in Germany, some people are saying, well, no, this is this is sort of the thing that they have to do. Otherwise, they should go home, which I think is is overblown for me. And the players were talking about this today after the game. They were saying that we got together. We talked about it. And I think the reaction that they showed was a really, really smart one. So everybody who didn't see it, they when they took the team photo, everybody put their hand in, in front of their mouth. So... Um, To the signal is as obvious. We are not allowed to talk. We're being silenced. Yes, we're being silenced. And, and that was, um, I think, a really clever way of saying you are silencing us, but actually you cannot silence us, and we're going to st still keep talking about it. Uh, as I said, there is a lot of criticism on uh, for the German FA how how they uh, were navigating through this situation, but uh, much more criticism is for FIFA. Uh, here and there was a survey today that I saw. I mean, there are a lot of surveys uh, 
and now uh, right now around the World Cup, where 57% of the people asked were saying um, that Germany should leave FIFA. Um, I mean, that's not not a serious option right now to, to just leave FIFA. But is the whole situation with FIFA and how they, um, uh, the, the world governing body of football is governed this football, is it um, heading towards a kind of breaking point? It, it could be, it could be. Um, the question is, who's going to blink first? Because as much as FIFA can't exist without the Europeans, the Europeans also rely on, on FIFA when it comes to the World Cup because just to play Euros, I think, would be a little bit boring. But you can see how the backdrop of the 2030 World Cup with Saudi Arabia being involved, with China perhaps being involved, will bring up all these problems again. And Gianni Infantino has shown where his bread is buttered. And I think there might be a point where the Europeans say, we cannot go through this again. If we don't resist now, we can't then just turn up eight years later and do the whole thing. <laughs> so I think you're right. I think it's heading for a crisis point, but there's also, and this was a point made by the German FA, Realpolitik, you have to be realistic of what you can and can't do. And at the moment, I don't see how any European candidate standing against Infantino and all the control he exerts in Africa, for example, can find a majority to force him out at this point. Maybe the, the Europeans have to find a way to, or need a narrative and something that's attractive for, for these countries as well, they, that are uh, the backbone of um, Gianni Infantino, and they were the backbone of Zeb Blatter and Joao Havelange and whoever in the, in the past. But, but okay, we don't want to... Is there any way uh, this evening how we can end on a happy note? Maybe with a new edition of Learning Fußball Deutsch. Learning Fußball Deutsch with beer and honey. Chancenwucher. <laughs> and and I don't know what that is in English. I'm I'm happy to learn it from from you. And I, I guess there's maybe not a single word that is uh, the equivalent of Chancenwucher, but a whole sentence. But um, um, it's uh, profligate. Okay. To be recklessly extravagant or wasteful in the use of resources. <laughs> Stroke. Opportunities. I thought you wanted to uh, to um, finish on a, on, a, on a high and on a positive note. I'm not sure that's really going to help at this point, Christoph. But listen, there is another game, at least one more game, that's going to be meaningful. And this game has just become a lot, lot bigger for Germany and for Hansi Flick. And we'll be back on Sunday talking about it. Come what may. And maybe we'll be in a better mood by then. But uh, thank you very much, listeners. Please remember to support us on steadyhq.com slash en slash honey. We need your subscriptions to keep this going. Lots of you have subscribed. Even more of you haven't yet subscribed. So please push that button 
and help Bien Hani continue its great work when it comes to educating the world about Fußball Deutsch and talking about all things German football. But from me, Raphael Honigstein, it's goodbye. And from me, it's Gute Nacht. No, not Gute Nacht. Um, Ein schönen Tag, because I very like you. You won't listen to it in, in the night, but in the morning when the sun is out and everybody is optimistic about the game against Spain on Sunday. Here we go. Bye-bye. Bye. Beer and Honey, the German football podcast. <laughs>